Hi, this is Cynthia Weil. I'm the author of I'm Glad I Did. It's a young adult novel that manages to weave together music, mystery, and romance, and it's appropriate for not-so-young adults as well. It takes place back in the summer of 1963, which was about when I was starting out as a songwriter. And since then, I've managed to collect a few Grammys and get inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so I should know this territory pretty well. But I must tell you that when I got stuck, because I didn't remember something about the music business back then, there was just one man I turned to. He does not have a book out yet, but I know that one day he will, because he is and was the much smarter Forrest Gump of the music business. He was present at every major event as everyone's favorite recording engineer, friend, and confidant. He is even a character, and I'm glad I did. My protagonist, J.J., uses him as an engineer for her first demo because she wants the best. Welcome, Brooks Arthur, and thanks for coming on. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, one and all. Hello, all. Uh, I'm Brooks, <laughs> I'm Brooks now, Arthur, I'm a... and I was born in, uh, in the Brill Building. <laughs> yes, you were, and you remember it all. And now, I know you well. We met in the early 60s up at Alden Music, a publishing company I was signed to, and I think you were signed as a staff writer, too. But, I, was signed, I was signed as a staff writer, yes. But I don't know how you actually got into the music business, so could you tell me about that? I'd love to. I got into the, the music business quite by accident. My dad used to sit me around... Uh, his old phonograph and playing me Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra records. And I would start to parrot those singers. And uh, it, it just dawned on me one morning that uh, I had a, what I thought was a better than average uh, singing voice. And I went right to Coney Island to start to make my own little records. And I would give them out as birthday gifts and Hanukkah gifts and Christmas gifts. And uh, suddenly I had a small little fan base and, uh, and then I would write little, uh, rhymes and start to record my own kinds of songs and then got a job as a uh, as a mailboy at a record company and witnessed many recordings. My first recording I ever saw in my life was Ella Fitzgerald uh, with recording with uh, Gordon Jenkins. Wow. Song. <laughs> and that was at 50 West 57th Street, the old Decker Carl building. And by the way, on the weekends for weddings and bar mitzvahs, I was paid by a cantor in Brooklyn to sing a couple of liturgical songs and one romantic song for the bride and groom. And Brooks was, um, I remember, a kind of Eddie Fisher sound alike. Would you I say that's Eddie, accurate? I, I think that's more than accurate. I actually tried to imitate him too much and never uh, sort of discovered myself until a little later. But uh, I, I just to go backtrack a little bit, I... Uh, I was brought into the uh, Alden Music Office uh, where, where you guys were writing, and writing you were, let me tell you. Uh, I was brought in by Jack Keller and a friend named Artie Kaplan, and uh, they thought that I had some talent as a lyricist, and I started to join them in, in writing with two guys, three guys, sometimes four guys, and then uh, sheepishly walking around the office banging on a door like Cynthia's or Barry's uh, door to... Uh, uh, help me finish a song or write a line or get a better closing. Um, it, but it was an all-for-one and one-for-all kind of an attitude at Alden Music. 
And in what year did you make the switch from singer-songwriter to engineer, and, and what made that happen? You made that happen, Cynthia. Carol made that happen, Cynthia. <laughs> Barry made that happen. Jerry made that happen, Jerry Goffin. When he says Carol, he means Carol King, Jerry Goffin, and my husband, Barry Mann. You guys made it happen because I couldn't out I couldn't out like you. You guys were too good. Uh, we were we were great. You guys were beyond great. And I just needed to have a fallback position. And as I referenced my uh, sort of mailboy days at Decca and Carl Records, and then to another label called Cap Records on 57th Street in Manhattan, I sort of started to glean from some of their recording engineers some interesting knowledge and I found myself uh, sort of gravitating and just instinctively knowing how to make, how to mix records. And I started to do little demos at a studio in Manhattan called Dick Charles studio at uh, 799 7th Avenue. And then uh, we did great songs there with, uh, with some of these great writers. We also did a song there called the locomotion, which was a demo for DD sharp, uh, it was supposed to be the follow-up to a song called The Mashed Potato. And when that record hit another sort of smaller but uh, uh, more important uh, studio called me to, to leave Dick Charles. That studio is called Associated Recording Studios. And then there's where I started to cut many hit records, including My Boyfriend's Back by the Angels and a Foolish Little Girl by the Shirelles and... Uh, only uh, 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 work with Gene Pitney and on and on and on. And then suddenly got a call from Jerry Goffin when he was at Mirror Sound recording a singer named Freddie Scott and their engineer got sick and he asked me to pinch hit. And we cut a song called Hey Girl. And that was the first time I had done a real grown-up session because of the sessions I had done before. Hey Girl, which was a, I, I was just lucky that I was called by Jerry and before that, I was just doing demos, and this thing turned out to be a monster, and suddenly I went to work the next day, and there was an offer on the table for me to join Mirror Sound Studios at 145 West 47th Street, and when I walked out one morning after a long session, there were a line of clients waiting to work with Brooks Arthur, and it floored me. Let me explain to uh, the audience what a demo is, because we take for granted that everybody understands. But a demo was um, short for a demonstration record, and demos were a bare-bones version, version of how a songwriter envisioned the song they had just written. And we'd all go into a studio and cut our bare-bones version, and Brooks was often the engineer, and it was so important in our process that um, in uh, I'm Glad I Did, my protagonist, J.J., records her first demo with Brooks because she is promised that she will, be, uh, she will get the best. Um, so you've given us a couple of titles of, of famous demos you recorded that went on to become hit songs. Do you remember anything special about those sessions? You know, Cynthia, it's a, it's a terrific, terrific question because uh, viscerally, I always responded to what I thought was going to be a smash. I sort of had like Donnie Kirshner kind of ears, but in a studio setting. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was, it was easier for me to <laughs> to pick it out because it was sort of half planned already. You guys, you and 
Barry and, and, and the other writers and Donnie Kershaw would hear it even prior to Bare Bones. You would hear the building blocks. But when I heard a song that, that uh, like when uh, we did the locomotion, I just said to myself and to others around me that this can't miss. And when <laughs> I heard, when I heard, you know, your songs, uh, I, I just knew they, they couldn't miss. I mean, but you, as an engineer, had to work as hard on the ones you heard that you didn't love as you did on the ones you heard that you loved. And how'd you manage to do that? Well, I took an old axiom from uh, one of my uh, mentors named Dave Cap uh, in New York City, and uh, he had started Cap Records, and prior to that, it was he and his family who discovered Billie Holiday and Louis Armstrong and those kinds of people. And he told me that I should never miss an opportunity to get into a studio because you never know what miracles happen. You never know where the hit is. Mm-hmm. I wasn't a, a prognosticator of, of hits. That wasn't my gig, though I had great instinct. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I gave as much passion to a, what I thought was a lesser song because, A, I could learn, and, B, the the, rec- the demo that I'm working on could become tomorrow's smash and the artist himself could be a huge success that happened many, many, many times, and uh, uh, and more often than not, uh, uh, the, the songs that I thought were smashes were. But more often than not, I would I would work on the ratio of having more songs that were not sort of going to be smashes, but turned out to be great records. If I'm making myself clear. Yes. Um, now, in my book, I had you working at Dick Charles' studio because that's the one I remembered the best. But after that, you went to Associated, and then you went to Mirror Sound. And did you go anyplace else before you opened your own studio, Century Sound? I was Yes, I did. I went to one other place. <clears throat> I was doing a recording session um, at Mirror Sound. With, uh, it was Phil Spector's session. I, I think it was... Uh, I want to say it was with uh, with the Crystals. Mm-hmm. Lala Lala Brooks was, was doing the lead. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the, at the end of the session, I turned around and uh, I had never met the man before. But there was a guy sitting there in the chair behind me, and his name was Phil Ramon. And he came by and said he wanted to check out uh, what all the what all the talk was about. Mm-hmm. And, and, <laughs> and Phil Ramon was. <laughs> Uh, a brilliant musician and engineer who went on to make history. So this was someone who was checking you out, but he was someone very, very impressive. Yeah, well, Phil, in the later years, you know, engineered uh, all those, uh, many of the Paul Simon records and many, many of the Billy Joel records. Absolutely. He was Billy Joel's guy. And he did the duets records with uh, Frank Sinatra and Tony Bennett. So as he was growing older, he was growing older with the music and coming up with more and more incredible ideas. So he was always relevant. And I learned from him as well how to try to be relevant and uh, learning from you too, Cynthia and Barry. Um, the, point, the point is, Phil said, uh, there's a lot of, lot of talk about you and uh, we'd love to bring you over to A&R Studios, and, and they did. They made a very generous offer for me to come to uh, A&R Studios. And Cynthia, can I uh, just uh, tell you a couple of records that I, I made there? 
Absolutely. Uh, one of the first records we made at uh, at A and R Studios was a, not only a single but a, an album we did in two or three days. It was called "Blowing Your Mind." It was by Van Morrison, hmm. and and one of the songs included in that in that in that album was a, call, a song called "Brown Eyed Girl." And wow, a classic. Produced, <laughs> it was produced by uh, Burt Burns, and I met Burt, Burt Burns who wrote Twist and Chat and many other songs. Uh, was yeah, it, I'm I reading was, his biography at the moment. Yeah. And uh, uh, Jeff Barry, my lifelong friend, uh, introduced me to Burt Burns, and uh, uh, Jeff asked me to engineer Neil Diamond Records at, at A&R Studios, and... Uh, and then, uh, so just in, it's just without even waiting for the, my second heartbeat. My first heartbeat was, wow, I'm at A and R Studios. This is big. And mm-hmm. then my second heart, my second heartbeat was, oh my gosh, Van Morrison and Neil Diamond in one room. Of course, I didn't react that way to Van Morrison and Neil Diamond that way per se, but I knew it was major. Yeah. Because neither, neither of them had hits, but that old visceral sort of instinct was going again. But these were a way above average kind of songs, you know. Yes. And and artists and so that's that's how I that was my next move. <laughs> now, did you have a favorite of all those places you worked? That's a very good question too, boy. <laughs> a good you, you mean you, a hard you, question you, you have to think about it. You ask the you ask as good questions as you write your lyric. God. <laughs> Anyway, uh, no, I think that uh, if I can be corny, mm-hmm. I'd, re- I'd, ra- I'd rather just subdivide my heart into four or six or even eight compartments, even though it's not, even though it's anatomically incorrect. Uh, <laughs> I understand completely. Uh, there's a part of my heart and a part of each studio and each of the writers and artists that I work with all these years that has actually sort of coalesced and made me me. So mm-hmm. I don't have a favorite. I But the launching grounds are, are, are the romantic favorites, and that has to be, even prior to the studio, that has to be uh, Alden Music mm-hmm. at, at 1650 Broadway and then the Dick Charles studio job, demo studio job, because on a lot of levels it saved my life because... My wife Marilyn was pregnant, and I was not as good a songwriter as Barry Mann and Cynthia Weil. And, uh, and there was no competing with that foursome. And then when it became a sixthome between Neil Sedaka and Howard Greenfield, it was too too tall a mountain for me to climb. So <laughs> I, cli- I, I climbed another mountain, and believe it or not, man, I made it to the top. Oh, you absolutely levels. did. I, I want to run some names by you, of people you worked with, and just give me the first word that pops into your head, okay? Go. It's scary. Uh, Janice Ian. Delicious lyrical. Dusty Springfield. Moody. Brilliant. <laughs> George Jones. That's a very difficult question to answer. To answer on the air, but I'd be fine. Can I give you a real, a true answer? Sure, we we love the truth. 
Paul Griffin was our piano player on that session, and uh, it was a George Jones section. It was booked by Music Core Records, the same label as the late great Gene Pitney. And uh, George Jones, uh, Paul Griffin was African-American, and to, to minimize the event, uh, they weren't grooving. George was oh. not grooving with, with Paul. And I had a uh, flick of the lights threatening that I would end the session if all that uh, sort of bigotry didn't end in a minute. I'd wa- I-, I would walk out of the studio and they'd have fucking nothing. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Who knew? Boy, that's a scoop. Um, tell me, when I say the name Herb Alpert. Jewish. <laughs> Gee, I would say handsome <laughs> and talented. I, I would say I would say it too, but there's room for misinterpretation there. <laughs> That's true. Now you worked with um, people like Jason Alexander. Funny, funny. Jason Alexander was part of a. Uh, <clears throat> I was I was in in my attempt to give back to the industry and to the world for all that it has given me thus far. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to uh, to a passion of mine called Israel, the, the state of Israel, I um, created an album called The Jewish Songbook and asked many of the great uh, songwriters and uh, and singers of that faith, of the Jewish faith, to leap in and uh, join us for a uh, 100% contribution to the uh, Jewish Federation kind of a, of a situation, and Herb was the first one online. Herb, Herb lined up first. Jason Alexander was right there, second. Adam, Adam Sandler was third, and had some promises from some great people, uh, but uh, perhaps they uh, they got cold feet. Now, what about this non-Jewish comedian, Robin Williams? You won a Grammy well, for that album, didn't you? We we won we won two Grammys actually, Sin. Uh, in mm-hmm. nineteen nineteen seventy nine, uh, Neil Bogart, uh, my my friend Buddy Moore, uh, who managed uh, Robin Williams and Woody Allen and David Letterman and Billy Crystal, <clears throat> had an artist named Robin Williams, and the, the show was called Mork and Mindy, and my daughters had told me about Mork and Mindy, and they said, this guy, Robin Williams, is amazing, and I should produce him. And then, magically, a phone call came through from Buddy Moore, who said, hey, I know that you do, you love comedy, and maybe we could find an album deal for, for Robin, and we went down to meet him. And then we took Neil Bogart for a meeting. Neil Bogart owned Casablanca Records and had artists like Cher and Donna Summer and Kiss and Joan Jett on his label, and uh, saw saw Robin Williams at a, at, a, at a taping of Mork and Mindy and put a blank check in uh, Buddy Moore's jacket and said, fill it, at, fill it in. Robin is now on Casablanca Records. And Buddy said, I can't fill in a number. That's not what I do. But you write in the number and we're, we're, we're with you in any event. And uh, Do you have any idea what the number was? I never, I never knew. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, and or I'm too old to remember. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> no, you remember everything. The answer's lying. Sorry, but anyway, uh, 
Robin was one of the greatest experiences of my life, and it's funny because you would think that uh, this is a little complicated of an answer. Please, I hope you can follow the... I'm trying to connect the dots here, but my life and my world was music. Singing was my life. That's what I was born to be, but at least I had an attachment to it via the fact that I was engineering and singing along with the demos. <laughs> that sort of counts. Mm-hmm. Um, but I never thought in my life that success would come from comedy when in reality all I would ever do with comedy was I would give a lot of the comedians the midnight to 6 a.m. shift, the graveyard shift, to uh, sort of like hone hone their craft and uh, edit their own albums or I'd have my younger uh, assistant engineers um, uh, work with with the comedians and learn how to edit. And then I guess uh, it came back to me through some good news that uh, I was to have some success with with Robin, my first comedy album, and uh, we won a Grammy for it. And when I we opened up the Copacabana in New York to to record it live, and that was a Ron Delsner production, and he uh, the Copacabana had been closed for many many years. And this was an event that uh, required. Uh, uh, a facility such as 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 the Copacabana. It was romantic. It was sexy. It was ever, and it was exciting, and it was a proverbial who's who for reality. What a concept! And they had to have police guards with those wooden horses and real horses to keep the crowds away from Robin Williams. It was like walking down the street when we walked from our hotel on Central Park South to the Copa. It was like walking with the Beatles. Hmm. And and when when uh, when uh, when Robin got to the crowd, the kids would go "nano nano," and then there was a chant "nano nano," <laughs> and he'd and he'd come running out of the out of the dress rehearsal or the club and or out of the recording truck, and mingle with the kids and the fans and do wild things with his crazy suspenders, multicolored suspenders, and we we made a great record. And as we were packing up to leave after two days of recording. The crowd, though, was much, much less, and the wooden horses were still there. Uh, it was a very quiet and sort of eerie, Nanu, Nanu, we'll miss you forever, was the subtext. Hmm. We'll love you forever, and that that's what I thought of when I heard that Robin Williams died. That was the oh. first thing that came to my mind. Was that crowd, or what was the remains of that crowd going Nanu, Nanu, into the, into the distance in Manhattan? Oh, wow. And, and the other thing is that uh, we uh, did one. I know I can't follow anything up with that, but I must commend Robin on uh, one more point, and that is in 1987, ish, we did a, an, an HBO simulcast with uh, 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 it's called a, a Night at the Met with Robin Williams at the Metropolitan Opera House, and that album, though it wasn't as original and it wasn't as isolated as Reality What a Concept, the first album. Nonetheless, it was funny enough and good enough to win his, his second Grammy. So, yes, I have two Grammys for comedy artists. So hmm. And that's, that's a one-word answer to Robin Williams. <laughs> now, what made you close Century Sound to open 914, which was another recording studio that Brooks owned? <clears throat> Well, the location of 135 
the Century Sound was 135 West 40, West 52nd Street, 135 West 52nd Street. The reason I, I, I was so happy to find that studio, though it was a one-flight walk-up and difficult for the musicians, uh, I love the address because the address was the same address, 135 West 70th Street, as Tithian Temple, which was a, a big a temple in uptown Manhattan, West 70th Street, 135 West 70th Street. And that's where Decca Records did a lot of their big recordings, and that's where I would watch the Four Aces record and Louis Armstrong record and the McGuire's record. And um, when I found that address, I thought that would be a great... I, I just thought that it was time for me to leave A&R mm-hmm. and, and go on and try it on my own. And uh, I had a partner, and the partner was... A, turned out we had great success, great, great success, but my partner turned out to be uh, uh, another uh, example, a glowing example of a, of a of a of a bad marriage in business. Mm. But, but I will say this: that there are elements that I will talk about, and that is that um, we did two very crucial sessions, almost in the same month at Century Sound. Van Morrison had just left uh, Bang Records, the Burt Burns label, and uh, and they didn't leave on a good note. Uh, but that was soon to be fixed, but at that time, it was not a good note. And um, Van Morrison showed up with a jazz band, and we did an album called Astral Weeks in three days. Mm. And that that is one of... Rolling Stone says it's one of their twenty-five. Uh, that's one of the twenty-five most seminal rock and roll records ever made, and I was privileged to be a part of that. And I also, because of the friendship and I guess the good job I was doing on all those Neil Diamond records produced by Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, uh, Neil asked me to launch the second leg of his career for Uni Records with a song called Brooklyn Roads, and then came back and asked me to uh, do the vocal and mix of a song called Sweet Caroline. Those are just a couple of the things that occurred at Century Sound. And through all of this conversation, I haven't even gotten to one Barry Mammoth Cynthia Wilde song, which makes me feel weird. But you're asking the question, so... Yeah, well, I just I want to know about you, not about me. Um, okay. But then you opened a studio called 914, which was up in Westchester, right? Absolutely. It was, called, it was in Rockland County, actually. It's about five or seven miles from a little, beautiful little town called Nyack, New York, and, and a wonderful actress named Helen Hayes. And I asked Phil Ramone to be my partner at 914. My former, my former bosses at A&R, um, we went into a 50-50 partnership. And we, I built this sort of workshop studio and, because I, I had visited a friend in Woodstock who had a tremendous successful studio called Bearsville. Albert Grossman, who managed and produced Peter, Paul, and Mary, and the band, and Dylan, and uh, too, too, too numerous to mention. But he had a good idea, and I thought, wow, uh, the, the, the music business in New York studio-wise... Mm-hmm. Word had it that it was drying up, and I thought, well, 
wouldn't it be interesting to have a workshop and have everybody come there and just book it as a flat rate and spend the hours and not have to worry about breaking down, you know, dismantling the, the drum setup and just keeping things set sure. up and, you know, when you when you when you're inspired, walk into the studio. It's yours, you know. When you yeah, want to go the, to, give the musician a home. Give the musician a home and the artist a place to roost. Mm-hmm. And and more important, or second most important thing to the sound of the studio was the fact that there was a 24 hour a day diner called the Blauvelt Diner, 100 yards from <laughs> from uh, my studio. And you've got to now, I'm going to tell, tell, tell you the albums that I worked on there. Uh, though we were underfinanced and it was grueling, because as soon as you build a studio, your analogy moves so rapidly and you're still paying lease payments <laughs> on antiquated mm-hmm. equipment, good as though it, it may be, it was still antiquated compared to the uh, the giant steps that uh, technology w- w- was making. But I'll give you one line, and I'll give you the backstory. I went to I was in L.A. I had moved to L.A. and then uh, I was at a a, a, a Bonnie Raitt concert here in L.A. and uh, Bruce Hornsby was playing piano. My my wife Marilyn was a senior vice president at RCA Publicity and knew Bruce and thought to be supportive of. She and I went to see that. We'll talk about Hornsby and and Bonnie Ray, and she thought it'd be supportive if we went and said hello and cheered. So during the intermission, I went on. I walked backstage to say hello to Bruce Hornsby, and sitting in the chair was Bruce Springsteen and his wife. And I tapped Bruce on the uh, the, the shoulder, and he was sitting in the director's chair on, in the wings. And he jumps out of the seat and says, Brooks, he says, the last time I saw you was at the Blauvelt Diner. And that's the last place I could have my eggs and I'd read my paper and then the shit hit the fan. <laughs> so, well, that kind of leads to my next question. I mean, people often ask if Barry and I knew songs like You've Lost That Love and Feeling would become iconic. And the truth is we didn't know. So I want to ask you, when a... When a then-unknown Bruce Springsteen came into 914 to record his first album, did you know he was special? Cynthia, like the first time I heard on Broadway, like the first time I heard You've Lost That Love and Feeling, and even like the first time I heard a a lesser-known song called We're Over, I just fucking knew it. (laughs) You knew. I, I could not catch my breath. Oh. I, I don't think I exhaled until his manager, Mike Appel, slapped me on my shoulder and said, what do you think? <laughs> mm. That must have been so thrilling to hear him for the first time. And you have continued since those days, and now you are Adam Sandler's music guy. You supervise all the music for his films. And if, if Adam allowed you to work with one contemporary artist, who would it be? It depends on what the word contemporary is. Uh, I mean, someone who is popular today. Uh, Can you, you think know, of anyone? Or should I, I make a suggestion? A, I'm going to go old school, and I'm and, and it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a it's a neck and neck finish, and I'm and I'm hacky or corny this way, but forgive me. I don't mm-hmm. mean to 
set your 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 podcast back in time, but I would give the world to work with Tony Bennett and and Billy well, Joel. Tony Bennett is as contemporary as Lady Gaga. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, exactly right. But I could also hear you working with Adele. Ah, that would be awesome. Well, I've got a couple of those stories for you, but that's offline. That's another podcast. It's another podcast. No, but I have I have been seeking and lost a couple of those gems in terms of an artist like that, but uh, it just didn't pan out, even though they turned out to be stars. But that's mm. for another that's for another chat. Another podcast. Tell me, is there one thing you would consider to be your most important professional achievement? Oh. Tough one, well, I know. Uh, I've got to stay contemporary. I've got to stay in. The, I've got to stay in these twenty years. Uh, I hope I'm answering the question correctly. But on May sixteenth, nineteen ninety three, when Mo Austin called me and who was the president of Warner Brothers Records and asked me uh, on a conference call such as this, uh, not a podcast, but a, co- a conference call with Sandy Warnick, Adam's man, Adam Sandler's manager. They called to ask me if I'd ever heard of Adam Sandler, and I started to, because I knew them so well, I started hmm. singing opera man to them, and they both laughed. They said, why don't you have a meeting with, with Adam, see if there's an album there, and you've, you've done such a great job on Jackie Mason and Robin Williams, who else can we go to? Mm-hmm. And I and I met with Adam, I, I got all dressed up in a suit, and then I met him at uh, Paramount Pictures, they were doing a movie called Coneheads, and they were all in Conehead outfits at lunch, <laughs> and I was, I, I was in the suit looking like the lawyer. <laughs> the suit. I was. I, I don't think I've seen suit. you in a suit ever. <laughs> so that yes. must have been quite yes, a, you did. an appearance. Yes, you, did. you saw me in a suit one time at Jennifer's wedding. Yes, right. <laughs> and so that that Adam relationship might be your most important professional achievement to you. Well, because. That was May 16th, 1993, when SNL went on hiatus. Mm-hmm. We started to work the next day at the Hit Factory in Manhattan, where the old Bell Sound Studio used to be on West 54th Street, between 7th and 8th. And then we did some sessions with G.E. Smith and some of the band from SNL, and then we packed, we packed up the, the road show, and we uh, went to L.A., and we have not stopped. We're still doing it, and what emerged were of four sensational albums. One included uh, 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 an iconic song called the Hanukkah song that I produced. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love that song. (laughs) And we still get letters from many people who say, put us in the next one, put us us in the next one, you know, and and they give us the rhymes, you know. Oh, absolutely. So I never had a gig for 20 years of my life except the gig of marriage. And, <laughs> and you, you know, managed to work that one out too. Now somehow, I know you I, haven't written a book yet, but you absolutely have to because it would be such a fabulous read. Consider it. I want you to know you've got one copy sold already. Based on that, I will move forward. I promise you faithfully. That's so great, Brooks. Thank you so much for telling us about your life and for filling us in on 
the 60s and the time of I'm glad I did. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. Congratulations and continued success, and I love you guys madly. Oh, we love you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.